Good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to be with you guys. It's been a minute since I've been able to, to, to be with you. This morning we are going to be talking about hoping on happiness. Okay, so this idea of happiness, and as a culture we are consumed with this quest for happiness, this idea of self-actualization. And the pursuit is realized, like we, we're, we're, we're chasing as a culture, we can look around and see our world, right? We, we see our world as chasing after being the best version and having the best life for ourselves. Uh, the self-improvement market was worth $11.3 billion in 2021. So this is self-help books, this is seminars, this is retreats, this is in-treatment facilities, $11.3 billion, and it's projected by 2025 to be a $14 billion industry. And despite all of the money spent, okay, the National Alliance of Mental Illness reports that 40 million adults in the U.S., so that's 19.1% of our country, have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Okay, so something is missing, right? Something is missing. 35% of our young people aged 12 to 25 took a prescribed psycho, uh, psychoactive drug in 2020, right? So we are desperately trying to find a way to feel better about what's happening in our life. This statistic represents a great contradiction in our society whose passion is to live life and to have happiness, to extend even to... Um, to the best that we could possibly have. You know, we want the best. And this is even represented in the foundation of our country, right? The Declaration of Independence, right? Talks about life and liberty and a pursuit of happiness. Man, we just want to be happy, right? As I'm a, uh, you know, throughout the week I meet with people. I'm a, I'm a counselor. And when people come into counseling, they have expectations of, of what that process is going to look like. And what I hear every single time is, gosh, I just want to be I just want to be happy in my life, you know? I want to feel better about my, myself and my relationships. And I'm not here today to bash the idea of feeling happy, right? That's not the goal here. But we do need to see the underlying issue that our country's foundation, the, the, our identity, the way that uh, our culture functions is not actually what we were designed to be, right? Hoping on happiness has been a lost hope. It's been a lost hope. So today, we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you want, you can turn there. We're going to be going through that whole chapter. Uh, uh, we see, we suspect that you know, King Solomon wrote the book at the end of his lifelong experiment of experiencing everything that the world has to offer. So we see Solomon, and, and he's, he's pursuing everything under the sun. But this is not how he began his reign. As a young man, he was a humble servant of the Lord, and he was de desperate to receive wisdom and help from the Lord. We see in 1 Kings chapter 3, I'm going to have it up here on the, on, the, on the PowerPoint for you. It says in verse 7, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant a king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. In verse 9, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. See, as a young man, he prayed for wisdom, right? He was desperate to have God's heart. Yet as he aged in his heart, he, he turned away from his God, his Jehovah, to, to many wives, to all the things that he, could, that he could obtain with his riches. And these marriages, right, you know, as he, as he grew and he matured, these were motivated by pol political pursuits. He was wanting to conquer and to have more and more. And so what we see is his heart over time was hardening and focusing on something else. So the king in his later years, he was miserable because God had removed his hand from, uh, from, from his life and yet Solomon was still on the throne because of the promise that God had made to his father. And so after Solomon's death, the nation had divided and the house of David was left with two different tribes and everything that was built up in the name of, of Jehovah was broken down. So this morning, this is significant to you and I as we sit here today. This is significant because just like King Solomon, we live in a world obsessed with pleasure 
diametrically opposed to pain and fixated on instant gratification and self-fulfillment and is a foreigner to holiness. And though as believers in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that this is not our home, that we are just passing through here, we often do a mighty good job of fitting in right here, don't we? We look good at fitting in right here. So today, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do some breakout sessions, and we've done this before. So we're going to take some insight from Solomon. We're going to learn from his mistakes. We're going to glean from his conclusions in Ecclesiastes 2. And despite his wisdom, right, we see that he fell prey to the allure of hoping on happiness and his obsession on the fixation of eliminating pain and maximizing pleasure. And we see as we meditate on this passage, right, we're going to try to extract how we can apply this to our own lives. And we want to be able to get to a place where we can take something tangible with us this morning. So we're going to do some breakout groups throughout the, throughout the session. We're going to have three breakout groups, so kind of look around and see who you think you can be honest with, right? If you don't think you can be honest with anyone, then, you know, like, fake it till you make it, right? Okay, so that's the goal this morning, is we want to take something with us that we can apply to our lives. So what we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is Solomon's reflections on the futility of pleasure. Futility of pleasure. He laments of his lifelong pursuit of searching for sustaining satisfaction from his obsessions, okay, the way that he was looking at his life, the things he was fixating on, so his obsessions and his possessions, right, the things that he had gained in this life. This is what his focus was on. We find him in verse 1 through 3 reflecting on his pursuits. He asks himself a series of questions. So this is a smart man. He's lived a life, and now he's reflecting on it. So he's asking himself a series of questions, and he's received um, this predominantly pleasurable life, and he's, he's looking at it. He concludes that it was all Vanity. He says that it was all meaningless. So we're going to unpack this. He works through his pursuit of revelry and partaking in everything the world had to offer and concluded that it didn't actually fulfill him. He begins to list his possessions in verses 4 through 9. He talks about all the houses that he built and the, the vineyards that he planted and the gardens and, and the orchards and all the trees and the pools that he made and the endless resources and servants. And he had herds that were big and small. And he had gold and silver and strange treasures from all over the world. He had the finest entertainment that anyone could imagine. And he even said multiple times, he looked around, he's like, man, I don't know anybody who's got what I have. You know, he looked around at all of his peers. He looked at all of Jerusalem. He's like, nobody has the wealth. Nobody has what I've been able to obtain. And in verse 10, he says, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from an any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I have labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Wow. For what is a man profited? Matthew 16, 26. If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. His conclusion to this assessment of his life that there was no profit under the sun, all of the stuff that he had obtained was meaningless. My pursuit was a mere chasing of the wind, he said, a wasted endeavor, a barren life. Our first point this morning that we want to, to hold on to is hoping on happiness results in a profitless life. It's, it's profitless. It's barren. There's nothing that we can actually gain from it. Solomon's obsessions and his possessions could not sustain him in the end. When the party was over, he was left empty and filled with regret. And what is this about? I mean, you know, you think, you know, from the outside, we, we look at, at individuals like this and it's hard to imagine that they couldn't actually maintain happiness with the amount of resources he had. It seems strange, right? When we, when we think about that just objectively, it's like, it seems like that would be something that would be possible to do, but Paul reveals the issue. He talks about it in Romans 14, 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace 
and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know, we were not made for all of this. We weren't made for all this. In fact, we were made for another kingdom. We were created for another kingdom. We weren't made for meat and drinks. We we weren't made for houses and vineyards. But to be filled with the Holy Ghost, giving ourselves to our own desires, this is not what we were made for. Pleasure-seeking is self-gratification. And self-gratification, as our main sustaining resource, destroys true righteousness, peace, and joy. So when our main sustaining resource is something like pleasing ourselves, seeking pleasure, it destroys the very thing that we were created for. The flaw in our world's philosophy is the focus is on the wrong destination, right? The world is heading towards the wrong destination. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. See, God's will for our life was he created us first and foremost to be holy, right? Man's counterfeit and consolation to holiness is an obsession of happiness. So here's the definition for you. Okay, happiness is the outcome of subjective, favorable happenstances. Subjective, favorable happenstances. Meaning, man, when my situations go my way, I feel happy. Okay, and this is not to say that happiness is bad. In fact, being happy is wonderful, and God created us to have that experience and and to even have that desire to be happy. But desiring happiness becomes an issue when it's a person's primary solution and system of measurement for their stability. Okay, so when this becomes the main thing that holds us together, we're heading down the wrong path. If you live for pleasure alone, enjoyment will decrease unless the intensity of pleasure increases. Okay, does this make sense? So then you reach out, you reach towards this constantly, and it actually produces a diminishing return. So it's like a cup with a hole in it. If you don't continue to fill it, right? So you got a cup, there's a hole in the bottom. If, if, as long as you continue to fill it, right, um, then you're good. But as soon as you stop, it empties. My son and I were playing in the tub last night. He was in the tub. I was completely soaking wet on the side of the tub. He uh, has this cup, and it has all these holes in the bottom of it, right? It's got like a, it looks like a little shower. And so he pours it in, and it drains out quickly, right? But one thing that he really likes to do is if for me to keep filling it, right? And so it's just this endless stream, right? And so I'm working you know, hard to fill this cup so it never stops draining, right? And that's, that's what we do, right? It's like... We're constantly working in the flesh, working hard to make sure there's this constant flow, right? right? As soon as we stop working, it dissipates, right? And, and the problem with this is the more that, you know, the, a good example would be like some form of addiction, alcohol addiction. So the more that people drink, right, the less enjoyment they get out of it. And this means that they must have more drinks and stronger drinks in order to have the same amount of pleasure, right? So I have to get more and more and more just to kind of keep up with how I felt, right? So this type of mental and emotional and physical state can become an idol that robs God of his glory and derails us from the purpose and the ministry and the mission that he's called us to. And this happens so subtly, doesn't it? It does. It's, it typically begins with some form of distress. You know, maybe you're fatigued or you're overcommitted, you're overworked or Maybe it's just that, you know, life is hitting you with a trial and our gratefulness for God's provision dissipates amid our pain and our perspective starts to shift to our circumstances and we'll reach to our flesh for some sort of instant relief. And this is primed by what we were talking about earlier, our culture, right? Our culture has this this problem of comparison. We're always racing someone else, you know, this idea of competing. If, if only if I had, you know, this thing, if, if my wife was this way, you know, then I, I would, things would be better. If we, could just, if we could just close on this house, then we'd be better. If I could just get this, you know, this, this contract with work, then we'd be okay. If my kids would just behave, you know, then, then we'd be better, you know. It's like, then I would be content, right? We have this, this whole, this whole, 
process of looking for the next thing, we begin to covet the appearance of prevailing prosperity of our neighbor. And we reach for what is accessible to us. And, you know, we judge this in the flesh a lot. You know, we look at people's appearance and we, we look at what they reach for. And, you know, maybe the thing that you reach for isn't that terrible. You know, maybe, it, maybe it's being a good dad or uh, working hard or, or just being really active in ministry or, or being a good parent. You know, but whatever it is, if it's not done walking with the Father, communing with the Father, then it's a form of godliness has no power. Okay, so we are going to take five to seven minutes to consider, and then we're going to share our consolations, our, our counterfeits for holiness. Okay, so this is going to take us to, you know, reflect on ourselves. These are the ways that we are prone to pursue happiness and instead of pursuing Christ. And these are our, our obsessions and our possessions. This is the way that we're prone to pursue uh, how we can um, have uh, the kingdom without the king, so to speak. So, in one minute, we're going to um, ref- share with our group, and this is our questions. Can we throw them up on the board? Okay, so first, what are you prone to reach for in the flesh to satisfy you that leaves you profitless? Okay, so what are you prone to reach for? And then what need is it trying to fulfill? All right? So an example of this is, I know that I am prone to preoccupy myself with projects, uh, you know, around the house or things like that. I can, if anything that I can get my mind focused on that I can prove my worth, right? And so the need that it's meeting is that it says that I have value, right? So that's something that I'm, that I'm prone to reach for that provides me with some sense of value that is profitless, right? Or I can idealize something that I'm doing, like, you know, like a running venture. I can idealize that. Or, or just even something simple like mindlessly scrolling through the internet, news articles, uh, social media, and this is usually to avoid something that I feel overwhelmed by. Does this make sense? So we just want to really ask ourselves these honest, simple questions about what it is that we are prone to reach for in the flesh that helps us feel better right now that actually isn't profitable. Does this make sense? Okay, so jump in your groups and, okay, we got some talkers in the room, okay. I've, I've been in conversation with you guys, so we want everybody in our group to be able to share. So mind the time, right? So we have five to seven minutes to let everyone share, okay? So let's break out into groups, and then after that, I'll call you back in, and we'll jump into a quick group discussion. All right.
right, all right. You guys can hear me. We're gonna jump back into our time together. I'll give you about 15 seconds to move your attention back up here. So finish the thought that you're on and we'll jump back into our next second part. All right. If you want to stay close to your groups, you can, because we're going to be jumping back in in a few minutes here. How was that? Was it a good time? Were you able to be honest? Cynthia's like, no, being honest? <laughs> yeah, it's good, though. It's good. All right. Okay, let's get back into uh, the passage here. And next, we see Solomon. So we've, we've heard from Solomon. He's, he's kind of lamenting and reflecting on his life. And we, uh, as we see in verses 12 through, through 23, we're going to see Solomon continuing in his life assessment. He's searching for sustaining satisfaction from his wisdom, okay, wisdom is your blank, and his wealth, and his wealth. So his wisdom and his wealth. He begins with considering the value of his wisdom. So he concludes, hey, you know, a wise man sees death is coming and he lives accordingly. While the fool walks in darkness and is caught unprepared. And so he, he, he reflects on the fact that it's better to be wise, but he determines that both the wise man and the fool die. And both the wise man and the fool are forgotten. And so he's lamenting over this reality that he spent so much of his energy being wise and having wealth. And he says in verse 17, Therefore I hated life. I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation in the spirit. In his despair, he concluded that everything he worked for and everything he valued didn't have lasting purpose or value. Solomon, the man that had everything, hated his life. What a shame. You know, I, I played in a band for years, and we had an opportunity to tour with a lot of like bigger Christian bands, bands that had a lot of wealth, a lot of fame. And what was so strange, you know, you, you interact with these guys who we all know, you know, it's like, and a lot of them are just miserable. They hate their life. It's, it's confusing, right? It's confusing that we could seek after everything the world offers, and yet at the end of it, we hate our life. But this is not the fate of the believer. It says in 1 Peter 3.10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that speak no guile. When we abstain from evil, God gives us sustaining joy and contentment for the life that we have. The life that we have. So the life of the believer does not have to be meaningless. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that you lab your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So when we are resolute in our position of laboring for God in the matters that matter to God, our life has eternal purpose and fulfillment. Okay, so as we continue through uh, Solomon, we see him in from eight, verse 18 to 21. He starts speaking about his wealth. He laments that not only can he not take his wealth with him, but his riches will most likely be squandered by his predecessor, and as little did he know that his son, Rehoboam, would do that just in fact, right? That the kingdom would be broken apart on when he handed it over after he passed. And all of this led to, as he's lamenting, to his despair. We pick up in verse 22. It says in verse 22 here, For what hath, no, what hath a man of all his labor and all the vexation of his, his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh no rest in the night. This is also vanity. So what do we get for this laboring in our life as we try to gather all of this wealth, you know, we're, with this anxious striving, only for us to come to the conclusion that it was just a waste. It was all wasted. If you guys want to see something that is sobering, okay, that is uh, a sad sight to see, you should go to an estate sale. Has anybody ever been to a state sale? <sighs> this is so sad. If you walk, you walk into someone's home, okay, 
This is their house that they meticulously cared for for years. And you see all of their prized possessions covered with these little colored tags and stickers. It's like their favorite chair right here. It's like a dollar. <laughs> right? Here's their favorite chair for a dollar. All of their, their, their ornaments and all the things they collected from all their travels just given away for quarters. Right? And people, you know, you have these like Amazon, like, you know, I don't even know what they are. These people, eBay guys who are just like running away with all these people's stuff, right? Like pirates, right? You, these, these gurus, you know, these like vintage gurus that are going through all of their clothes. It's like, it's, it's wild, right? It's sobering. Our second point for study is hoping on happiness results in a despairing life. It's despairing. Solomon's wisdom and wealth could not sustain him in the end. After a lifetime of labor, he was angry and depressed. Of course, as we've said already, there's nothing inherently wrong with happiness, and there's certainly nothing wrong with wisdom or wealth. There's nothing wrong with these things. But seeking the kingdom without the king results in a hollow heart. We end up being this hollow shell. We have this appearance of life, but no sustaining power or purpose. And the only reasonable outcome to a life lived like that is depression. Because it's depressing. God has called us to a different destination. Colossians 3, verse 1, it says, If ye thee be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So when we pursue the king, we get the kingdom, and we get his heart. Not only do we get the kingdom, but we also get his heart, which means that we love what he loves, not what the world loves. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, okay? The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some com uh, coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So when we wander from the faith, right? When we, get, when we get sidelined and we get focused on what the world has to offer, when we wander in the faith, we sabotage ourselves by missing, misusing God's gifts for the pursuit of the world. Kenny and I were just talking. He just quoted a guy. He said that money, what was it, Kenny? Money really just amplifies what... Makes you a bigger whatever you already are. So the pursuit of happiness, right, through the form of our, our finances, just makes us a bigger whatever we already are. Okay. Instead, God has made us to be stewards. Ecclesiastes 5.19, just a couple chapters later, Solomon shares, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor... This is the gift of God. So we have the responsibility to manage a portion of God's resources. God owns it, and we get to manage it. This reframe shifts our focus from the gift to the giver. So let's take five minutes, seven minutes, five to seven minutes. We're going to consider some more questions. Let's get back into our same groups. And for the first couple of minutes, I just want us to have like some some time to reflect, okay? So we're not going to jump right into conversation. We're just going to reflect a little bit. And then the last bit of our time, we're going to go around and share what we've reflected on. So our questions, if you want to throw them up on the, on the screen here, what in my life am I investing in that I can't take with me? Now, these things aren't necessarily bad, right? But we just want to take an account. We want to do an inventory. What are the things that I'm investing in that I can't take with me? My house, my cars, my career, my body. I want you to make a list of those three things, okay? And then the next question, how can I assure that these things are not what I hoped in to be my sustaining satisfaction? So my plan is to remind myself that I'm a steward, right? I want to be able to reflect on what these three things that I'm investing in can be something that I can steward. So I want my house to be not something that I build up for my glory, but to be a place of ministry. This is, these are examples. I want my career to be a place, not so I can prove my worth and my value, but a place that I can pour into the lives of people that God has placed in my path. Does this make sense? So we're going to take a couple minutes. First, we're going to reflect just on our own. And then after that, after everyone kind of has felt like they've gotten something to share, then we're going to share, okay? And then we'll jump back in.
All right. Okay, we have three more minutes, three more minutes, so make sure everybody's getting to share. Three minutes till we jump back in.
All right, one more minute. One minute, and we're gonna jump back into our group work. One minute. guys could finish your last thoughts here and then move back into sending your attention up this way and we're going to jump back in. Okay. The only person left speaking is my wife, so I'll wait on her as I usually do. Oh, hi. <laughs> she, she's blame shifting now. She's blaming it on Rich. Rich is the one that took up all the time. Okay. Heard that before, too. <laughs> all right. So we have talked about how Solomon in his conclusions as he reflects on his life that they were profitless. We've discussed how uh, he comes to the conclusions that there was, that he hated his life, that it was despairing. And so as we, as we work through the idea of hoping on happiness, we see in the final few verses, in verses 24 through 23, we see Solomon accept the realities of life. He accepts the realities of life. He concludes that without God, we cannot be fulfilled in this life. He says in verse 26, For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. So when we, see, when, we, when we please the Lord and trust Him to meet every need, He gives us His wisdom, He gives us His knowledge, and He gives us His joy. So our point number three this morning is hoping, not in happiness, but hoping on holiness results in a rich life, a rich life, when our assured hope is God's transformative ability to make us like Him, we will receive His attributes in this life and in the next. Solomon's acceptance of the reality of life led to what we imagine was some sort of heart change for Solomon. You know, we don't see this directly. We don't see his repentance uh, in the Scriptures here. Uh, but we, we have evidence that is concluded from how he writes Ecclesiastes. After a lifetime experiment of testing and everything, testing everything under the sun, Solomon concludes that life is not worth living without intimacy with his Creator. Walking with the giver always pales in comparison to the gift. When we have an intimate walk with the Creator, the, the, the Creator of the universe, but that uniquely created us, it always pales in comparison to, to the, gift that he, the gifts that He gives us. When we commune with God, His blessings are just decoration in our life. His blessings are no longer our fixation, but rather a peripheral byproduct of His presence. Something he could give or take away, and we would still be rich. It's how Paul was able to proclaim in Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith, to be content. Paul wrote this book on being content, on having joy, as he sat in a Roman prison cell for perspective God provides us with a formula where we too can have this type of life. It says in Ephesians 4.22 that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So today, we have seen what we are prone to be like when we hope in our own strength, when we are, are prone to seek pleasure in this life. So we are to put these things off, these behaviors off, 
as we consider our life in light of spiritual reality. The truth that God is real, that He sent His Son, that He desires to have an intimate relationship with each of us. And for us, He desires to be holy as He is holy. In this renewed mind, we can put on the new man and we can do that again and we can do that again and again and again. And this process of putting off, renewing, and putting on is a lifelong purifying process. Right? So, just because we've received Christ doesn't mean that we aren't going to sin again, right? Obviously, we are very influenced by our flesh, the world, and the devil. And so we have to have a purifying process. This is what we describe as sanctification. We put off, we renew, we put on. We put off, we renew, we put on. And this is what we can do to be more like Christ. So we know we are doing this correctly when we have three attributes of evidence, okay? So we're going to go through those really quickly. Number one, we have a lively hope, okay? Hope is your blank. This is a confident expectation in God's fulfillment of His promises, Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So regardless of our circumstances, we can trust that God is at work and that He is good. We can have a lively hope. Number two, we can have true peace. Not manufactured peace. Not fabricated peace. But true peace. This is a state of being that is promised upon surrender. Philippians 4.7 And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your mind. Your minds through Christ Jesus. When we lay our problems before the Lord, He promises to keep our hearts and our minds. So we can have a lively hope, a true peace. And then number three, we can have a sustaining joy. This is not something that happens based on circumstances, happenstances. This is something that is sustainable. This is a state of being that is, that is possessed through proximity. Proximity. Psalms 16.11 thou, thou, uh, thou wilt show me thy path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy presence, through proximity, as thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. When we move towards God, God God's pl good pleasure and happiness is no longer dependent on our circumstances, but rather the personhood, the person of Jesus Christ. So we're no longer bound to the exhaustive pursuit of self-gratification that is short-lived and leaving us searching for our next fix. So our final breakout session, okay? We're going to again take our same groups and we're going to reflect first and then we're going to let everyone share, Rich, okay? We're going to let everybody share. Okay, so question, how can I practically put on, okay, put on a lively hope, a true peace, and a sustaining joy in my life? So some examples for you. I can hope in God, for example, that He will open the doors for the right house for us if we're supposed to move. This is really practical. I can hope in God. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I don't have to be anxious about it. I can just trust in His assured hope that if He has for us to be somewhere else, that He will. I can have true peace as it relates to the conflict in my family. I don't have to be contingent on everyone getting along in order for me to be okay. I can have joy, sustaining joy, living in, into it and receiving what God has for me no matter what the season is. Okay, so we want to walk through this. So take a moment for yourself and then jump into your groups. And then we will conclude by, I'll, I'll kind of wrap things up for us. So five to seven minutes and then we'll jump back in and I'll wrap things up. Okay.
Brian. Okay, so we have about three minutes. Three minutes. We're going to jump back in. We have one minute and we're going to jump back in to wrap things up. One minute. Let's wrap up with whoever's speaking currently, and then we're going to jump back in to wrap up up here. All right. Okay, before we close. Today, I want to leave you guys with a biblical procedure for lasting change. So, if you could direct your attention back up here before we conclude. All right, so I want to leave you with some homework, all right? We love homework, right? This will be helpful, in all fairness, will be helpful for you to just to kind of meditate on it, and it's pretty self-explanatory, but I want to provide you with a biblical procedure for lasting change. So I've created a six-step process to assure continued success in what we have discovered today. So I can promise that if you meditate on this, that you will see sustained transformation in your life, right? I, I can promise that. Okay, so these six steps are an acronym for change, and it's a process that we can walk through. Um, it, it describes the call upon wisdom. We call upon wisdom from the Lord. We humble ourselves under the control of the Holy Spirit. We admit unbiblical deeds. So these are thoughts and our words and actions that we, that we want to acknowledge and, and, and repent of. And then we notice conduct through self-evaluation. And then we gird up our loins. This is establishing a daily plan of put-offs and put-ons. And then the last one, E, we establish a biblical support system. So I want you to spend some time, if you guys could promise me, promise me that you'll read through this at some point throughout the week just to, just to find some sustaining, transformative path forward, okay? So today we have looked at the testimony of King Solomon, this rich, wise king. And we've identified together that we are prone to hoping on happiness, right? And now we've reestablished that, in fact, that's not what we were created for, but God has desired and he, he, is, he has built us for something completely different, a different kingdom and a, a completely different personhood. He's desired for us to look like Jesus, to be holy. To be holy. So this is our posture. We want to pursue Christ so that we can have his peace and his joy and his righteousness. Okay. Praise the Lord. I'm going to pray for us, 
and then uh, we'll head up to the main building. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the testimony of men who've gone before us who can, can share, man, there's a way to live life that, um, that is, is worth living, Lord. And uh, we need that in a world where there's so many people that don't know that there's a life worth living. And so, God, would you not only fill us so that we can live that life, but also that we can model that for uh, the world around us and for the people that you've placed in our, our path. Lord, thank you uh, for this time. Thank you for this fellowship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.